Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, with a message titled, Trust and Obey. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18, verses 12 to 22, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. In our study of Acts chapters 16 to 20, we now come to a section that marks the end of Paul's second missionary journey. I know the way in which our Bible is set up with chapter divisions and individual verses, that doesn't show up well. So in truth, I'm sure that those people that inserted the chapter divisions, I think they got it all wrong. And when I say that, would you understand this? That the chapter and verse divisions in your Bible were not put in there by the original writers. They were added many years later to help us find places when we're looking for them. But in Acts 18.22, that marks the end of Paul's missionary journey in Acts 18.23. That marks the beginning of his third missionary journey. So if you're studying your Bible, you might want to scribble a little note in the pages there to help you identify it when you're reading through Acts. So when we come to the area of our study today, we find Paul is wrapping up his second missionary journey, a journey that took him into Greece, which of course is where Europe begins. This is the story of the gospel of Jesus truly becoming a global phenomenon. You know, for this reason, this section should interest every single believer. And Paul ends his second missionary journey with a series of events that reminds us that the way the good news of Christ came into the world was not the result of clever planning or visionary missionary strategy sessions, you know, designed to advance the gospel through human ingenuity. See, the reality is that the news of Jesus and his saving work came to us because God and not man took the initiative and designed the global growth of the gospel. Christianity spread to the world, yeah, yeah, through missionaries who were willing to pay the price. It often caused suffering, sometimes death among them. Yeah, human beings are required to be obedient to the call. But remember also that it's our response to the call, not our initiative. And also remember that the reason the message of Jesus succeeded was because at all moments, the Holy Spirit was taking the lead. And we saw that back at Acts 16, verse 6. Paul had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to Asia. Uh, That would come by other missionaries and later. Instead, Acts 69 tells us Paul received a vision of a man from Macedonia, northern Greece, begging he and his team to come over to Macedonia and help us. And so contrary to their previous plans, they crossed the Aegean Sea. The world was never the same after that. For this opened the door to the spread of the gospel through Greece and eventually into the heart of the Roman Empire. As we come to the end of this momentous second missionary journey, we find Paul and his team having to trust God's leading all over again. Lucas told us that when Paul came to Corinth, the leading city of Greece, that the Lord gave him a vision that no one was going to harm him in this city. He had been harmed in a great many other cities, but here he would be safe. But that promise was about to be put to the test. Acts 18, 12, and 13. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So let's start with the appearance of this man, Gallio. It's a very important bit of information here for two reasons. The first reason is that this is an important reference for anyone who's asking, you know, is what Luke 
is describing historical. And the second reason is because it tells us one of the reasons Christianity was not persecuted out of existence in the Roman Empire. So let's start with the first reason, that is establishing the historicity of Acts. That is, is what Luke is describing, did it really happen? So we know a lot about this man, Gallio. His actual birth name was Marcus Ananias Novitas. He was of Spanish origin. His brother was a very famous Stoic philosopher whose name was Seneca. You may have heard of him. At any rate, our Marcus was adopted by a member of Roman nobility, a man named Gallio, and our Marcus then took a name and became Gallio. The great deal is known about him. There's an inscription of him that's found in the Greek city of Delphi, and it mentions that he had been appointed the proconsul of Achaia by the emperor Claudius. You know, these appointments always last for one year, and then they're given to someone else. So Gallio was appointed July 1st, AD 51. And we also know that Paul would have been in Corinth either from the years 50 to 51 or 51 to 52. And we also know that Gallio was well respected. His brother Seneca said that no one of mortals is so pleasant to one person as he is to all as his brother. You know, from what we know, he was a man who had frequent health problems. He was very intelligent. He hated flattery. And he was an enjoyable man to be with. So we'd have to think that if the synagogue leadership were to drag Paul to court, they couldn't have found a better judge than this. This would not be like the magistrates of Philippi where Paul was beaten and then thrown into prison and tortured without even being allowed to give a defense. See, God had arranged that the fair-minded Gallio would oversee this trial. The charge bred against Paul was that he was persuading people to worship God contrary to law. That's an interesting charge because, you know, it's confusing. I mean, do the synagogue leaders mean the law of Moses or do they mean Roman law? And they don't specify, they leave that out. I suspect they were waiting to see what Gallio would do with that. You know, if the charge was that he was breaking Jewish law, they would soon see if Gallio would use Roman law to enforce the laws of the Jewish synagogue. Now, since the practice of Judaism was protected by Roman law, it might be that the synagogue leadership were looking for Gallio to make a ruling separating the followers of Judaism from the Christian faith, leaving the practice of the Christian faith without any protection from the state. Had Gallio ruled that way, that would indeed been a very unhappy precedence for the Christian faith. But it's also possible that the synagogue wanted Gallio to rule in regard to Roman law. And there was a Roman law that forbade the proselytizing of Roman citizens. That is, if you converted someone to faith in Christ and that person was a Roman citizen, that was an illegal act. So it seems to me that the initial charge, that Paul is persuading people to worship contrary to the law, that was left deliberately vague. Then when they saw where Gallio would go with that, they'd press their advantage and forever change the relationship of the followers of Jesus to the Roman state. So much was at stake here. And furthermore, if the synagogue leadership won this case, they would have had Paul thrown into prison immediately. So Acts 18, 14 to 16. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Well, this is a sudden and remarkable turn of events. You know, Paul knows that this court is different. 
He is about to bring his defense, but Gallio cuts him off and he makes a ruling. He's heard enough already. He is seen through this moment of time. We know that Roman proconsuls were given a great deal of freedom when a case didn't involve, you know, the normal crimes that would be set before them. When it was a case of in which there was no clear crime against the state, when it dealt with local customs and sensibilities, Romans thought the proconsuls should deal according to their own training and wisdom, and Gallio did just that. He tells the Jews he knows with certainty that there is no wrong being done here. This is not a vicious criminal brought before him. He also tells them he knows them well and that the complaint they have involves three things. First, he says it's about words, and I think he's referring to the words in the Jewish scriptures and their interpretation. And second, he tells him he knows it's about names. And we don't know this with certainty, but I suspect he means the name of Jesus and the fracas that has come about their disagreements about that name. And third, he says, I know it's about your own Jewish law. And he tells them, no Roman law has been violated here. But you think your own Jewish law is being violated, you deal with it. And since that's so, Gallio gives his ruling. This is an internal matter for the synagogue. It's not a matter of Roman law. Rome will not become involved in this. You'll have to work it out in your own community. And then Luke adds one more word. This even-minded, easy-to-get-along-with Gallio had heard more than enough. He was frustrated. He had dealt with complaints from this synagogue before. He was getting tired of the constant coming to court. At any rate, Luke tells us Gallio drove the synagogue, their leadership, and everyone else from the court. You know, it's possible that the Jews wanted to object. Gallio wouldn't hear of it. It's also possible they were slow to leave the court, and Gallio wasn't going to put up with that either. And I'm assuming that Gallio called on the court officials, the police, and literally drove them out. And with that, all official threats against the Christian faith ended right there. No legal action would be taken against Paul. God had sent Gallio to Corinth from the Emperor Claudius for one year, the very year that Paul was there, so that Gallio would protect Paul and protect the Christian faith. Bless God. There is a moral decline in our society. A Christ-centered way of living no longer seems to be the norm. Without the truths of the Bible influencing our culture, this decay will only worsen. But there's hope and there is opportunity. God has called Christians to be salt and light. That is why this month, Back to the Bible Canada, is pleased to make a new booklet entitled 10 Christian Essentials for Cultural Change available to all who would request it for free. The content of this book comes from Dr. Neufeld's audio series, An Alternative Lifestyle, and presents 10 concise but powerful ways we can all affect change in the world around us. To request your free copy today and to learn how you can help bring light to a broken world, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. All Christians should be grateful when courts rule in our favor. You know, my view is that Christians shouldn't look to the courts or the laws of the land to give us any advantage that other religions don't have as well. 
But we pray earnestly that God would give us legislators and judges like Gallio, who in wisdom would not allow the followers of Jesus to be prevented from practicing and spreading the faith. In short, Gallio established a precedent, a precedent that we read about later in Acts 25, when Paul appears before King Agrippa, where Agrippa refuses to rule on matters that deal with the questions of dispute between Judaism and the Christian faith. See, that precedent was that Christians were innocent of breaking Roman laws when they were simply teaching their faith and following their doctrines and beliefs. Indeed, might I say, that's what we desire everywhere in the world today. You know, just a little thought after that. Gallio, if you wonder whatever happened to him, it's actually quite tragic. You know, the Emperor Claudius was followed by the mad and cruel Emperor Nero. Nero not only had Peter and Paul executed, he also had Gallio executed as well. Such was that cruel and evil man. But let's not get distracted. Let's get back to our text. I'm now reading Acts 18, 16, and 17. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. But here Luke doesn't tell us who they all refer to. I mean, who is it exactly that beat Sosthenes, the new synagogue ruler? So we're going to have to remember that Crispus had indeed been the synagogue ruler, that he had converted to Christ. And Sosthenes, if indeed he is the same Sosthenes that Paul mentions in the book of 1 Corinthians, well, he would later come to Christ as well. But here would seem that Sosthenes is the man who had arranged the charges against Paul and his missionary team. So who decided to beat him? Well, there are only two possibilities. You know, perhaps the leading Jews in the synagogue formed a mob and did beat him because they suspected he had Christian sympathies all along. And he hadn't put together the strongest case against Paul. And so out of their anger as to how this matter played out, they turned on him. That's certainly one possibility. Well, the other possibility is that the court guards had become frustrated that the Jews weren't leaving quickly enough. And once they were outside, the anger rose. And the guards gave, you know, the synagogue leader a severe beating. And all the same, Gallio was not going to have this mob back in court to retry anything. So he simply ignored it. The church in Corinth had been established. Paul was free to continue to minister. He was free to win more people to Christ. The church was free to grow and establish her leadership. And Paul also knew that if he was going to be faithful to Christ, if he were going to continue to trust God in everything and to obey the commands he had received from God, he needed to leave Corinth. He had not been called to spend his life as the senior pastor of that local church. As inviting as it would have seemed, he needed to play the role of being a world missionary. So Acts 18, verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila at Cancre. He had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Now what follows, Paul is on his way home, back to the church in Antioch, the church that had sent him in the first place. And he needs to go home and give a report and pray with the elders and make plans for another missionary journey. And it's fascinating that Paul says that he was able to stay longer before taking leave. This was then the first place in Greece where Paul hadn't been driven out of town. The court case was completed. God had intervened. He had sent a wise man, a balanced judge. There was no law that would prevent him from staying. But the time to leave was at hand. And so he set sail for Syria, which is where Antioch was located. That was his home church. 
but there's not a straight route there. It will be a while before he gets home. And it's interesting that Paul takes Priscilla and Aquila, that wonderful couple that made it possible for him to begin his work in Corinth. It becomes clear that Priscilla and Aquila, tent makers just like Paul, would also be given the same freedom to take their business to another city and to be prosperous there. And that was of great value. And they decide that it's time not just for Paul to leave Corinth. God's calling them to go with him. And as we're going to see, they won't go all the way to Antioch. They're actually going to stay in Ephesus. No doubt, Paul would make that a part of their decision when they got there. But on their way, on the long voyage before them, they cross that narrow isthmus from Corinth to the Greek mainland. And there's a town there on the other side. It's called Cancre. There, says Luke, Paul had his hair cut, for he's under a vow. And we're not told what kind of a vow Paul had made, but it is possible that he had made a vow to the Lord that after Jesus had given him the vision that he would be protected in Corinth and that no harm would come to him, perhaps, and we are told this, but perhaps on the basis of that vision, Paul made a vow that he would not remain in Corinth. Even though it was tempting, he would carry on the task that God had called him to do. And the cutting off of the hair, in Judaism, that was usually offered up at the end of the vow. So whatever Paul had vowed, it was now completed. That again gives credence to the idea that once Paul left Corinth, he had fulfilled the vow that he had made to God. And that means that he was committed to the mission that God had given him. Paul was not going to lapse into spiritual ease or spiritual complacency. He was continually trusting and obeying God. So let's continue. Verses 19 and 20. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. So Paul has now sailed from Corinth to Cancre, across the Aegean Sea, and he arrives in the port city of Ephesus. Ephesus was the main city in the Roman province of Asia. It was on a very important trade route that took goods from the sea and brought them inland. And the city was a remarkable city. It was larger even than Corinth, and at that time it would have been either the third or the second largest city in the Roman Empire. It was considered very important to Rome. Like Corinth, this city was wealthy because of its trade routes. It was also, like Corinth, a city that was known for its many temples. And it was most famous of the temples was the temple to the goddess Artemis, or the same goddess is the Roman goddess Diana. She's a fertility goddess who's depicted as a woman with multiple breasts. Well, the city had everything from theaters to stadiums and libraries. It's considered to be one of the wonders of the ancient world. And for those reasons, one has to imagine Paul just wanted to be there. I mean, this place desperately needed the gospel. But our text merely says that he reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue there. And we have to imagine it was only for a short period of time. Perhaps a part of Paul's vow was that he needed to be back in Antioch, and so he was not to be distracted from that. He was a man under orders from the Lord Jesus himself. And so after spending some time there, and we don't know how long, Paul then takes leave of them. But he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there. They would have seen Paul's ministry in Corinth for a year and a half, and they would no doubt be equipped to take a small group of believers and form them into a church. I take the time to mention a bit about Ephesus because by the time we come to the end of the first century, Ephesus, that would become the center of the global Christian church. At least it was that for a time. And we also know that Paul's later book, 
the book of Ephesians was directed to the church there. And Paul himself would spend three years in Ephesus. And we know more about the church in Ephesus than any other church in the Bible. I mean, seven of the New Testament letters were either written to or about the church in Ephesus. And these would include the book of Ephesians, first and second Timothy, you know, written to Timothy who was pastoring in Ephesus. John's three epistles were written from that place. And I love to say this, the most famous sentence ever written in world history was written in Ephesus. That's when John the Apostle wrote John 3.16. Ephesus was pastored by a great many pastors, Paul, Apollos, Timothy, John the Apostle. It was believed that Mary, the mother of Jesus, died in that city and was laid to rest there. I have no doubt Paul desperately wanted to remain there. But Paul had made a commitment to go to his home church and report back. And that was an important commitment because it was also made unto the Lord. And he would always be obedient to that which Christ called him to do. And so reluctantly, he leaves Ephesus, saying he would come back if the Lord opened the door to come back. And of course, the Lord did. One more verse, Acts 18.22. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Well, Antioch is actually north of Caesarea. So Paul landed in the port city, the Jewish port city of Caesarea, and then traveled north to Antioch. And there he met with the church that had sent him. I wonder how long it took for Paul to tell the church what God had done in Greece. And all it took was to trust in the leading of the Holy Spirit and to remain obedient to Jesus. Hey, that's all it takes for us today as well. Thanks for your message, John. Uh, John, can you give me your perspective on, on praying for governing authorities and lawmakers and even those who seem in opposition to the Christian faith. Yeah, and there are many, and uh, we need to say that. Um, And so we're not naive, assuming that uh, sometimes there are leaders that are put in place who push for an agenda which is harmful to the church and therefore harmful to the spiritual life of all the citizens of their nation. That's a problem. However, we pray most earnestly for them and for their good and for their wisdom. Christ called us to do it, so let's do it. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. We've been holding off, but now is the time to make an exciting announcement about In Doubt. The Young Adult Ministry of Back to the Bible Canada is now welcoming Andrew Marcus as its new host and director of In Doubt Ministries. Now, if his name rings a bell, it's probably because Andrew is an award-winning singer, songwriter, and pastor. Andrew brings so much to the ministry, including a master's degree in theology, a huge network of Christian influencers and leaders, and most important, a vision and heart to reach young people with the truth of God's Word. So please pray. Pray for Andrew's leadership and pray that In Doubt would have a profound impact on the spiritual journey of many young adults across our nation. These are challenging days and young adults need to know that God's Word is reliable and speaks into every question of faith, life, and culture. To find out more, check out indoubt.ca 
or call us at 1-800-663-2425.